Hello to our listeners and welcome to TNT ESQ. Along with my co-host, Reese Thomas, I'm Teresa Quinlan. We make up TNT. For those of you that don't know, it's our name, Thomas and Teresa. We're here to explode the status quo, because this series is all about talking with people who are helping us to think differently so we can start doing differently. Our guest today is Miriam Hadnes, a behavioral economist, facilitator, connector, a podcast host of Workshops Work, which aims to inspire fellow facilitators to design and deliver workshops that work. You know, I'm a big fan of the show. It's a great resource, whether you're an experienced facilitator, whether you're new to the business. She's always has a very eclectic mix of people on the show who each have their own expertise in the specific niche areas within workshops training. I can highly recommend it. Miriam is, is passionate about her human behavior. She enjoys moments of sparkling creativity, finds fulfillment in the creation of environments that enable collaboration. As a designer and facilitator of team and business workshops, Miriam helps participants to get out of their own way by creating safe spaces and exercises that bring forth a group's full potential. Welcome to TNT ESQ, Miriam. Thank you. Thank you for this very kind introduction. You're very welcome. We're looking forward to this topic. We had a brief chat beforehand about what, what you wanted to talk about. Everyone probably not be surprised to hear that your obsession or your passion is about workshops and how to facilitate those workshops. We like to ask our guests to share a bit of a backstory as to how they came to this role, what it was that inspired them to follow this passion. You said that we're now living in unusual times, unique times where everyone now has permission to experiment, to fail, to try. And I think that links very nicely with the idea of collaboration and also workshops. So maybe you can just give us a, an idea of how we got to this point with you, Miriam, and workshops. I got into workshops by experimenting and failing forward. I think that's why I'm thriving in the, in the current environment as well. I um, used to have a background in academia. I always wanted to work in the university and I did until I think four years ago. I lived in Vietnam for three years to set up a study program for Vietnamese students. Then I went to Luxembourg to work for the university president as a strategic advisor and I helped him to set up a bottom-up strategy process. And this is actually how I came in touch for the first time with workshops because he gave me the opportunity to work with very experienced facilitators and learn from them. And we had world cafes where we would invite university presidents, where we would have students, administrators, secretaries, all brainstorming together about the university strategy. We had workshops with ministers, with public administrators, with lobbyists. So I could really sense the beauty and the potential that can happen if you bring people together from different perspectives to share their own knowledge and to build on each other's ideas. So at one point I decided to leave the public sector and I moved from Luxembourg to Amsterdam. And my initial idea was to find a job in, in organizational development, but after Almost a year of searching, soul searching, connecting and trying to find a job, I realized that I was simply unemployable. Mm -hmm. So I decided I would go solo. And my first idea was, 
I will throw ideal parties. So I invite people to come to share their challenges and then the entire group of guests will help them to solve this challenge. And this transformed into masterminds. I had meetups and then suddenly people asked me for support and advice on how to design and facilitate workshops. They started to pay me to facilitate workshops. And then suddenly they started to pay me to design workshops that I didn't even have to facilitate. So I thought, hmm, maybe I'm onto something and I should really focus on designing and facilitating workshops. Before we go any further, could, would you be kind enough to explain to our listeners what a behavioral economist uh, is all about? Yeah, so we're at the intersection between social psychology and economics. So it's basically observing, understanding human behavior related to economic decision-making. What we are interested in, what are the small tweaks, the so-called nudges that we can implement that bring us to take better decisions without even noticing it that we are, in quotes, manipulated. So for instance, I think most, one of the most prominent examples is the opt-out versus the opt-in. So if, you, if the government wants to increase the number of blood donors or organ donors, before it was, please check this box if you want to donate your organs in case of a fatal accident. accident. Thank you. Yeah. And they switched it into an opt-out. Please uncheck this box if you don't want to do that. And just by this little tweak, by this so-called nudge, they increased the numbers of donors significantly. Mm-hmm. The path of least resistance. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, I love that. So you mentioned something interesting for both Reese and I, is this element and underlying of learning. The capacity to reach our potential requires the cycle of wanting to always learn and explore and experiment, driven by our curiosity. And I'm, an ima- I'm imagining that coming into a workshop element, there must be some sort of formula that you've implemented to be able to say, I'm picking workshops, because it seems that workshops are the way that get people to whatever the end result is, better than listening to a lecture, reading a book, so on and so forth. So. Can you help us sort of dig into why the workshop environment? I really believe that in most cases, we have the answers to all of our problems already in the group. So what I experienced in my previous job, having this bottom-up strategy process where everyone brought in their own ideas and experiences, we developed something that everyone felt attached to and this is also from behavioral economics, it's called the IKEA effect. We get attached to things that we build ourselves. That's why we love our Billy. Mm -hmm. So if a group comes together to really share their own perspectives on a shared common goal, then not only the solution will be adapted to the reality, but also they will be more interested and motivated to actually implement the team strategy. On the other hand, if you have a consulting company coming in, they interview the leadership and then they write a report and tell the people, okay, now you do this. Everyone will be, hey, 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 wait a moment. I could have told you that. Nobody asked me. Why do you want me to do that? And then you have this entire wall of resistance. 
in a workshop, when you give everyone the permission and the opportunity to share, you also get the opportunity to find new perspectives on a problem that weren't there before. So for instance, I, I once heard about this beautiful anecdote of the leadership from Tabasco. So Tabasco is this very hot sauce. I guess that you remember the times when you, had, when you wanted to use it, you had to turn around this small bottle and really, really shake it in order to get one drop out of it. The leadership team, they sat together in a strategy meeting and trying to find out how they can make more money. And they tried everything. Okay, we have to reduce the costs. We have to change our, our ingredients whatsoever. And then, according to this anecdote, at one point, the cleaning lady came into the room because they had this meeting for so long. And she listened to them discussing on how they can increase their profit. And she looked at them and said, so why don't you just make the hole bigger? <laughs> So you never know, what I love about workshops is that you never know who's going to bring in the idea that will be the key to the solution. So I always start with flattening the room, telling everyone, okay, every idea is equal, and I'm not interested in hierarchy, I'm not interested in roles and status. And then if you allow the group to just brainstorm on ideas, and if you tell them good ideas come from bad ideas, as long as there are enough of them. So you need a lot of bad ideas mm -hmm. so that at one point someone will think of this one magic thing. I don't know whether this answers your question, but that's- It totally answers. <laughs> completely answers my question. You provided so many great nuggets within there. People are gonna yeah. have to rewind the last three minutes and re-listen mm -hmm. to those pieces again in order to come, come out with, you know, why are workshops the best way to get mm -hmm tremendous outcomes buy-in fantastic so it reminds me of us we were talking to another person recording it last week and one of the things we stumbled across was a phrase that he i don't know whether he created or he was just kind of sharing with us uh, cognitive diversity so that what you said there about flattening the room or flattening the meeting whatever it might be and giving everyone the same amount of credibility or opportunity to share their ideas and then you know maybe collectively at the end democratically make a decision rather than just everyone shares and then one person makes a decision at the end. I think that's a real true example of flattening it. So you described the, the workshop, you described, described how it works theoretically, the perfect workshop. Presuming you have created the workshop yourself, you're not just there facilitating. Does the magic come as a facilitator in the preparation or does the magic come in the actual moment when you're facilitating? Before I answer, I would just like to go back for one second picking up the flattening the room. So I don't think that every decision must be taken democratically by everyone. So I think in some circumstances, it is necessary that one decision maker says, okay, I heard all of you and now I'm taking the decision. What is important though, is that beforehand the participants know what's gonna happen and to what extent their ideas are contributing to the decision-making or whether they are making the decision together. I think expectation management um, yeah. plays a huge role in that. And this maybe also then relates to your follow-up question. The magic of a workshop happens before it starts. First, you really need to have a purpose and that the people you invite know why they are there and they need a role. Because what happens very often 
if you're in a place where you don't know what your role is, instinctively you invent a role for yourself. Mm-hmm. Some people just zone out and they become observers. Other people, they might hijack them the session and invent the role of being the person who challenged everything or plays the devil's advocate or complains or decides to talk about a totally different topic because they have something different on their agenda. So aligning the people to the purpose and making clear that they understand why they're in this space together and how they can contribute. And then what I usually do is I have interviews with the participants beforehand because I think it's a very stressful moment to come into a workshop to meet someone, a facilitator, whom you have to trust in terms of process, but also in terms of facilitation to make it easy. Me as a facilitator, I expect from the participants to be their authentic selves, to come up with ideas, to collaborate, to behave nicely, Mm -hmm. to yes and each other, to be vulnerable. So there's a lot of pressure on, on the participants. And if they don't have a connection to me beforehand, I think I'm asking a lot from them. So what I do when I facilitate smaller workshops, and usually I do what I call boutique workshops for corporates. So I would interview all the participants beforehand in very informal ways by a phone or video call and ask them about their expectations And I always ask them, what needs to happen? So I ask them, imagine that you're coming home from the workshop and you talk to your friends and your family and they ask you, how was your day? And you start your sentence with, oh my goodness, what a waste of time. (laughs) What needs to happen for you to consider this workshop as a waste of your time? And this gives me so much information about what's actually going on under the surface. Because then they will say, oh, if we're just talking about the same old topics. Okay, tell me about these same old topics. Or if Mrs. X or Mr. Y starts with their old story again. So you, you kind of trigger a lot of insights. And then I can build a relationship to these people. So the moment they step into the workshop room, they see me, oh, man, finally I can meet you in person. Perfect. We, we have a mutual connection. So, uh, Oscar Trimboli was on our show. I think after I'd heard him on your show, you mentioned agenda. So he shared with us the, not the importance, but the idea that not having an agenda allows for much more honest creativity and the best, the truest, the most desired answer to come out without having any boundaries in place to start with. I appreciate that sometimes that doesn't work. Is an agenda always necessary in your mind or do you believe that and I'll tie that into it before you said about the decision making about the flat process. Do you think that the, that the workshop should be should always result in a decision or should it just be a purely creative space and then decision comes later? It depends on the purpose of the workshop. Some workshops like world cafes are there just to enable a group conversation and to harvest all the experiences and ideas that participants have already. And other workshops are necessary to really take a decision in, in a very fast way because you get all the people together you need into the same space. And then you can just run through the agenda and take a decision in the very best case. Regarding the agenda, I think 
it's good to have an agenda outlined so that you know what is the purpose and what do you want to have achieved at what point and when do you know what needs to happen so that you know that you reached your target or your goal because we need this small feeling of satisfaction right because very often it's after the lunch break if you have a full day workshop it's after the lunch break that somehow things fall apart and then everything takes longer than expected before lunch everything is good and we're working on the the content and the agenda and then after lunch i don't know what it is but it usually happens <laughs> so what um, what helps for that is after coming back from the lunch break just to have a check-in and see okay what do you need now to happen so that we are going to reach our goal and where do you see yourself and the group as part of this process depending then on the outcome of such an exercise you can decide okay can I just continue with what I've planned or do, you, do I need to pivot? So one of the things that I think is essential for anyone listening right now is the definition of a workshop. <laughs> because many of us have been to workshops that were not workshops. And many of us have been to lectures that were workshops. And many of us have been to workshops <laughs> that were lectures. <laughs> And oftentimes for us to clasp onto understanding, we have to reframe what we're currently defining it as. So could you please provide, this is part one of my question, how you define a workshop? For me, a workshop is a group collaborative framework where every participant contributes to a common target. Every collaborative interaction for me is a workshop. So a meeting where you want everyone to participate and to contribute with their knowledge is a workshop. Now here's the kicker. Okay. Yeah, this is the second part. Reese, hang on a second. This is the second part is the facilitator plays a critical role in ensuring it's an actual workshop, a collaborative effort. So from your perspective, we've heard a few already, you've mentioned them. Um, however, I, I'm not sure everyone's really sort of been honing in on, oh, she just mentioned something about a facilitator. And that's a great skill in a facilitator to be able to make a, a, a workshop actually work. So from your perspective, the role of the facilitator is to do what? What makes a facilitator exceptional within the workshop experience? Mm -hmm. I think for me, a great facilitator is someone who's fully present for the group, who tunes into the group and feels what is it what they need and how can I make it easy for them to get there. Mm -hmm. So to facilitate means to make it easy, right? It comes from the Latin or the French word facile. So it's my job to make it as easy as possible. And by easy, I don't mean that I take away all the pain. So I think it's also my role to sometimes challenge them and push them a little bit further. Naturally, we are lazy creatures and we just want to go through it. And a workshop does take us out of the comfort zone because we have to confront ourselves with other ideas, with other opinions. So it is also painful at times, but how can I use this pain for something creative and help the group to grow together to really get to their full potential? 
So for me, the most important skills of a facilitator is really the presence. So once you're in the room, you're there for the people and for nothing else. It's listening. Listen not only to what has been said, but also to what is not said. Mm -hmm. and to put your finger into the wound and turn it a little bit around to get what is unsaid actually on the table. Mm -hmm. And then also to structure. I think group conversations, they do get messy at times. That's just in their nature. Mm -hmm. So for me, a facilitator always brings the group to a moment of reflection and helps them to cluster the ideas to bring them in a new order maybe to also guide guide them to look at something that they might have neglected otherwise so you mentioned earlier that through your evolution of becoming a, the master facilitator that you are you also take on the role of creating the workshops without actually facilitating them so how does that experience differ because I know that some people will just be just want to be facilitated, just want to actually deliver themselves, whereas other people might not even consider this as a another, especially in these times that we find ourselves or everyone's diversifying somewhat and finding new ways of finding a, a income. How different is that in the, the creation, the adaptation, the application compared to you being there in the room? I realized when I started working with clients who wanted to deliver their own workshop and I designed it for them that I have to be much more explicit. Mm -hmm. I have to be much more explicit in the stages and um, what an exercise actually means and what the purpose is behind it. And then I also came to realize that sometimes it's better to tell them what they must strictly avoid instead of what they strictly need to do. Because you also want to take the pressure away from them and give them the feeling that they're good enough. If they're prepared, if they know the purpose and if they remain present and listen, then it's good enough. They don't need to pretend something or play a role because this will also reflect on the group. When I design a workshop for someone, it's important to really be aligned beforehand on the purpose and the process. And then I would co-design the session with them and help them to really find the red thread and to use one exercise. Okay, what is it? What outcome do we need from one exercise so that it will feed into the next exercise to really get the group to the next level? And then I would coach them on how to actually look at the harvest. So how can you build clusters? What are the little nuggets that you can zone into? then provide them with templates which help them to keep the structure. The downside of that is that they have less space to pivot. Mm -hmm. So if they realize at one point that it doesn't work because the group actually needs something different, if they are not experienced facilitators, this is very difficult to do. Mm -hmm. I often work with team leaders and they might not have the budget to hire an external facilitator, and they do have the facilitation skills because of their team, but what they are lacking is actually the, the know-how and how to get the knowledge out of their team members, how to design these exercises and how to put them into a wet thread. I would even offer that what they may lack is distance from the team itself. You know, sometimes when you're that third-party individual coming yeah. in, people assume you have no judgment. They know you have no history with them. And so 
speaking to you and sharing with you is really easy. Whereas when we have an internal facilitator that may even be the leader of our team doing it, we have all of that sort of relational stuff in the way that can make the facilitation a little bit trickier. Absolutely. Especially because we hear what we know. Mm. It sounds maybe a little bit confusing, but we relate to each other by reflecting our own experience on the other person. So if you're telling me a story, my brain goes, oh, how can I relate to the story? What have I experienced in my own life that helps me to make sense of the story? And then everything I say and I reply to your story has nothing to do with your story, but only with my story. So if we're in a workshop space where we have an internal facilitator, I think for them, it's very difficult. It's impossible to stay neutral because they have too much of their own story in the mind so that they might not even be able to hear what the other persons are actually saying. Mm -hmm. And this is not bad intention or ignorance, it's just the way how our brain works. And this is why I think it comes to play when we have feedback conversations, for instance. If someone is telling me a story or a challenge and, I, and ask me to give them feedback, then usually the feedback that I give has nothing to do with their challenge, but only with my challenge. And I should actually give this feedback to myself. So there are little tricks then that you can use to avoid that. So for instance, if you want to solve a problem, then start with a question brainstorm instead of a solution brainstorm first. Because asking questions, assuming that we won't answer them on the spot, but just generating questions shows all the different perspectives on a problem. And it also flattens the room because a question that doesn't need to be answered is just a question. You don't harm anyone. You don't put someone in a corner or in an uncomfortable position. Everyone can answer or try to find answers to the question themselves, looking for the answer within themselves and not listening to an advisor who has the solution apparently, which usually doesn't have anything to do with the problem. Love that. Yeah. So we've been talking about facilitating here, but earlier you, you used the word coaching. So I'm interested to know your take on where you draw the line between those two. And obviously if you're there as facilitator, you're there in that one role, or is there an opportunity to change? Do you just do one-off workshop? Does it turn into more of a coaching consulting period? You do you know, three or four or five, you come back, you get feedback. What's the typical engagement look like if someone wants to hire you to, to do what you do? When I'm in a workshop, I'm facilitating, I'm not coaching. And then I, I will challenge them for sure, <laughs> but I will not coach them in their group process. I will not, because I think coaching is for me and my interpretation on a more personal development level. Mm -hmm. So I would coach the team leader beforehand on how, what, on their role in the workshop. I would coach them if they want to facilitate the workshop themselves. If I realize that there are problems coming up, I might suggest a coaching session afterwards. If I would mix coaching and facilitating, then it's also confusing for the people in the room because the participants, they didn't, they didn't ask me for my advice. And who am I to know what it is they need if they didn't hire me for that? And it's similar with training. I always explain the process and I explain the idea and 
the science behind the exercise that I'm doing, but I would not go into the role, even, even if I may have subject matter expertise, I would not apply that and not tell them what I have experienced from other clients or in my previous life. Okay, so for me, when I'm thinking about coaching, one of the things that I would do would be, let's say use, it comes down to the questions, like the incisive questions. So if you're in a workshop and for whatever reason, everything that you've done is not going according to plan, the ideas, the responses, the, the good stuff is not happening, will you then tiptoe along the line of, the uh, incisive question asking coach to facilitate mm. the answers. You said they're usually the people who ask the questions are the ones who have the best answers. So how do you get to those if they're not being forthcoming? Who am I to know what the best answers are and what a good outcome versus a bad outcome is? I think for me, the neutrality of a facilitator lies in the fact that I'm not attached to the outcome. I'm in charge of the process and I'm in charge to create the space in which every participant can bring forth the best version of themselves. If they at the end are not happy with the results, this is not my responsibility. If after a day long workshop where they wanted to develop an innovation and they don't come up with it, this is not my responsibility. And I wouldn't judge them on the quality of their ideas because I think it's not my role. So when I see that maybe the, the energy is low or if I perceive that there's something hidden that they are not giving it all, then I might use another exercise, another question. I might try to push them a little bit forward or even challenge them and saying, okay, I think you can do more. I have the impression that something is holding you back. But I would not judge their ideas and give them the feeling that they are not good enough. Because I think if you feel judged as a participant, this is a moment where you stop having good ideas anyway. Mm -hmm. Sure. So the exercises that you have envisioned are potentially in in flow. You have maybe two or three in mind. If If what you see one isn't working, you can quickly... There's no, there's no agenda at the beginning of the meeting of the workshop saying, this is what we're doing before lunch, after lunch. You're free to interject whatever you feel the moment requires. So I do have, I do have agenda. I do create an agenda when I walk into a workshop and everything is, so all the exercise that I do are prepared. I usually have templates. If then I realize that it's going into another way, I just need to pivot and I throw the templates in the bin and I say, okay, let's try something else. Okay. I'm listening to you and I'm hearing a lot of spectacular leadership skills that cross this line into facilitation, that facilitation crosses this line into leadership. And I think this might be a great time to like hashtag it, not anymore, where we get your nugget of all of this experience that you've been rolling into this mountain of knowledge, expertise, perhaps, or on that way to expertise. I know that there is something in here that our listeners who are leaders and leaders of teams can take from you. Which benefit of like facilitation or workshops do you think is the most important piece for leaders to bring into their day-to-day and how they lead people and create environments of what a workshop does, growth, 
-hmm. in like the minute to minute day by day experience that people have in the workplace? The question. I believe that every leader must be a facilitator. So my vision is that um, in the future, every leader speaks the language of facilitation. Yay! <laughs> Let's just have a round of applause for that answer. Yes! Okay, expand. So, Tell us why. For me, facilitation is, I like the analogy to language because it makes it a hard skill instead of a soft skill. Mm -hmm. Language has a grammar, it has a structure, it's something that you can learn. There's something between the lines and it's something that you can master. And I think with facilitation, it's the same. A leader who's also a master facilitator, someone who has the skill to listen, to understand, instead of listen to reply. And a leader who goes last, so first listens to everything that has been said, and then summarize and add to that instead of saying okay i heard you all and now that we're doing this so why did you even ask us to speak up a leader facilitator understands that the host of a meeting must not necessarily be the facilitator of a meeting mm -hmm. so sometimes it's good to facilitate a meeting because it allows you to step back and let the other speak but at other points for a leader, it might be even more important to contribute. But if you want to actively contribute, you cannot facilitate at the same time. Because then you are biased anyway, and you have, you're too attached to the outcome. There was one study, I think it was in Harvard Business Review, that was really interesting. They found that there were studies beforehand that showed that the more we speak in a conversation, the higher we rate the entertainment of this conversation. And mm -hmm. we might all have these evenings where we, where we talk to someone, actually, no, we listen to someone talking, and at the end of this monologue, they said, this was such a great conversation, thank you. And you're like, well, I didn't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, and in this study, they used the, um, they used the example and um, related it to meetings that most of the time the leader hosts the meeting. Mm -hmm. So he's the subject matter expert or she, and speaks the most. So he has a total bias on the outcome and the quality of the meeting. Oh, what a great meeting that was. Well, nobody spoke except of you. <laughs> oh boy. Self-awareness and curiosity, important skills for a facilitator and a facilitating leader. Thank you, that is brilliant and very well described. Thank you so much. Now, there is no doubt that the listeners to this conversation are going to want to be in touch with you, Miriam, and learn more about workshops work. So we know that they can get in touch with you via LinkedIn, but how else can people get in touch with you? Workshops.work. That's where you can find me. Beautiful. We'll make sure that this is in the notes for the podcast as well. You also have your podcast to which we spoke to at the beginning of this conversation as well. And I've listened to two episodes so far. It's in my podcast rotation. Being a, a former facilitator in learning and development, I am tremendously enjoying listening to the, the nuggets of wisdom, I find myself nodding a lot along to them going, especially the ones where, especially the parts where you're like, don't do these kinds of things. I'm like, yes, don't do those kinds of things. It's sort of great to have work like yours out in the environment to help accelerate people through the, the bumps 
in their own career path. So and like double thumbs up from me. Keep going in that direction. It's magnificent. Thank you. There's one thing since your audience is interested in leadership. Can I share one optimistic thought that I developed through, through this crisis we are currently in? Yes, um, please. So my hope and my thought is that toxic cultures cannot survive remote work. And my hope is that we'll come out of this crisis, of this corona crisis, as with a better, more healthy work environment. Because if you're shouting at your colleagues, at your team members through email in these capital letter words, right? We only know these emails that shout at us. We just close the laptop and we zone out. If these toxic leaders have, let's not call them leaders. If these toxic managers or people don't have anyone anymore to shout at, maybe they will die out. And I think this would be a nice learning from this. Here, here. Definitely. All right, Miriam, before you go anywhere, we are doing our rapid fire Q&A. 10 statements, two choices, interpret as suits you best. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> Number one, manager or leader? Leader. Active or reactive? Active. Black and white or gray? Mm. Black and white. Optimist or realist? Optimist. Canada or England? Mm. Netherlands? Excellent <laughs> choice. <laughs> okay, number six, heart or head? Head. Empathy or assertiveness? Empathy. Introvert or extrovert? Introvert. Logical or emotional? Logical. And last but not least, innovation or process? Innovation. Beautiful. You haven't made it through the end. Thank you. Yeah, thank so you so much. much. That is so cool. We love to hear all of your feedback here on TNT ESQ. So if you've enjoyed this show, you've learned something, you've been inspired, please share it with your friends. Please rate the show. Please write a review on whichever podcast uh, platform you enjoyed it on to help us spread the word, help more people think differently, and more people start doing differently. Thank you.